Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Oh, Lord, help me through this minefield. (laughs) Dear Jesus, give us your words of revelation and truth and understanding this morning. By your Holy Spirit we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> I have on my phone, my, my wallpaper, a picture from my wedding day. It's got this tall, skinny drink of water with hair. And then Cheryl leaning back up against me with this big smile on her face. These two kids. I mean kids. I was 21. She was 20 when we got married. We're coming up on 31 years and it's only by the grace of God that we're coming up on 31 years. And he's, he has taught us much and shown us many things, not the least of which is that Christ at the center is the only hope for, for any marriage. I love the classic line from the speech-impeded bishop in the coercing wedding scene of the Princess Bride. You know the one. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. That dream of dreams. <laughs> I won't do the whole thing. <laughs> I'm so tempted every time I do a wedding to do that. Mowage, you know? <laughs> but we've come to one of those passages that is often used in weddings. To talk about Christ at the center of a marriage, it's used in Christian weddings, and well, it should be. It is upheld as the standard of the divine ordinance of marriage. But this passage is also disputed and debated and all too often completely misunderstood. I wasn't even going to do it on a Sunday morning. To be honest, I was going to try and just do it Wednesday night and and kind of skirt by it. And I also thought this is one of those more familiar ones, so why spend a whole lot of time on it? But the more I studied it, the more I read it, the more I realized how vital it is. Absolutely vital. Because if we don't understand what Paul is getting at in this passage, we could strike out. Not just in our marriages, but we could strike out as Moses did at the waters of Meribah. Meribah means strife, and the children of Israel were striving again, dying of thirst, looking for water, and none was to be found. There wasn't a slurpee in sight. And the story is told in Numbers chapter 20, where the Lord says to Moses and to Aaron, He says, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and assemble the congregation, and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. And you shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock, and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Numbers chapter 20, verse 8. Moses, for his part, told by God what to do, was absolutely sick and tired of the whining. And after calling the people, the word in Hebrew is morim. You morim. What it means in Hebrew is literally rebellious brats. 
That's what he's saying to them. You childish, rebellious brats. I mean, he really calls them out, and it's an invective term, and he uses this. And in Numbers chapter 20, verse 11, Moses then lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice before them with his rod, and water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. But the Lord didn't say strike, did he? The Lord said, speak to the rock. But Moses struck out. Moses, in his anger and his frustration, rather than speaking to the rock as called to by God, strikes the rock. And the Lord's response to all that, Numbers chapter 20, well, his first response was to bring water anyway. Which is a comforting thought to me that even when I strike out, God's grace still pours forth. But he says to Moses, because you have not believed in me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And that was the reason Moses would not enter the promised land. For all the other possible things he could have done wrong, all he did was strike instead of speak. And God said, that's the one that's going to keep you out, Moses. Partially because he misrepresented the intentions of God, who knew that the people were thirsty, who wasn't having a problem with the fact that they wanted water. He was okay with that. Okay, speak to the rock and we'll bring water. We've got this all planned out. I I was planning on watering the folks today anyway. Moses blew it. And if we, like Moses, not only misrepresent the Lord's intentions, but we mess with the message... We strike out. The first time the children of Israel thirsted, at Mount Horeb, Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, the Lord did command Moses to strike the rock. First time, he says, strike the rock. So Moses strikes the rock, and the water pours forth. Well, now this is the second time, at least in the Scriptures, that this takes place at Meribah, and the Lord says, speak to the rock so the water may flow. And the picture is profound. Jesus, the rock of our salvation, was struck at Golgotha the first time. And John tells us that blood and water flowed, John 19, verse 34. That was the first time. The second time, now we don't strike the rock. The rock was only to be struck once. Now what do we do? We speak to the rock. And the Spirit flows like living water. And what a beautiful prophetic picture that is. The only two times that the water came from the rock in the Scripture. Strike and speak to. And that was the Lord's plan. But Moses blew it. He messed with the message. He struck the rock twice the second time as if going before the Lord we would dare strike the rock again. But in his anger and his frustration, the rock was struck. And the rock is to be spoken to. And now if we but speak to the rock, John 7.37, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So speak to the rock. Just speak to the rock. Because the rock was already struck. So that's the picture. But Moses messed with the message. And so now we have this picture in the Hebrew Scriptures of striking the rock once and then striking the rock again. And that was not God's intention, either for the people of Israel or, I believe, for us today, reading this prophetic word. Why are we talking about Moses and the rock? Because we, like Moses, have messed with the message. We can't judge Moses too harshly. You see, the rest of humanity has done the same thing with what we could call the divine wedding portrait. We have messed with the model of marriage. We have shattered the wedding picture. However, this we also know to be true. So please understand, even before getting into this, and I prayed a lot about this passage, anytime we talk about marriages, with the number of divorces, with the number of broken marriages, with the number of hurting families, I understand that there's a lot of pain also connected And so, before getting there, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 It doesn't mean you go off to get divorced knowing that out of the pain of that, He's going to cause good. So let's really mess it up. No, even though we mess things up, He still can work in us and through us. 
in our lives where we would give up, where we would say, I've gone too far, I've blown it, I'm no good, I'm too messed up, God would still say, look, I can work with this if you're willing to let me. And that's the heart and the intention I believe we need to approach this with this morning. This picture of the water from the rock. Think about it. Though Moses messed it up, hey, we still have it. We just shared it this morning. We still get to see the picture. We still understand it. And part of it is because the Lord disciplined Moses and calls our attention to this discipline that we might pay attention to what happened. And in so doing, the picture is restored to us, this beautiful picture, even in spite of Moses' mess. You understand what I'm saying? That even in spite of the messes that we've made of our marriages, the picture is still here. And the picture is still ours to understand and to see. In fact, I think sometimes the picture is all the more beautiful in light of the failure. And it's the same with the wedding picture. Now note this, it's the basis for everything Paul is about to say in verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That underscores the whole rest section. The next section is coming. It is underscored by subjection to Jesus Christ by being subjected to one another. Be subject to one another. This is an unqualified subjection. Note that. Be subject, women to men. No, he doesn't say that. Be subject, slaves to masters. No, that's not what he says either. Be subject, one race to another, young to old, servants to leaders. Be subject. No, this is for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people who believe in and belong to Jesus Christ. This is the standard for all of us. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Kind of puts us in our place, doesn't it? That we are to be subjected one to another. The word subject is kupotasso. It's actually a military term, meaning to arrange beneath, literally. To put self under, to submit, to subordinate. And those in the Navy understand subordination and different roles in the military chain of command and the structure. We are to subordinate ourselves to each other. Which means my responsibility in the fear of Christ is to be subordinate to every one of you. And your responsibility is to be subordinate to each other. And it is the hardest thing for a human being to do. This is the tough one. Of all the other things we struggle with, man, in marriage, in the family, in the workplace, even in the church, I want to be in charge. I want my rights. I'm the boss of me. And besides, I could do a better job on my own. But the Bible says, be subject. Which means I really am the subject of all my relationships. <laughs> I am in subjection, for in Jesus we must be subordinate to each other. That's the deal. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to describe the ultimate subordination. From that point forward in Philippians 2, Paul talks about Jesus being subject to everybody. The incarnation of God made man, and then man made bondservant, and bondservant made humble to the point of death on a cross. Jesus subordinated himself to the lowest position on earth. We talked about in prayer just a little bit ago about how our majestic, magnificent, awesome God and Creator, Creator of all the universe, would stoop so low as to be present with us this morning. Hey, that's nothing compared to how low He stooped to get to Calvary and to end up on the cross. So if you need help subordinating, if you have trouble putting yourself, arranging yourself beneath somebody else, look at Jesus. Of all the power and the glory and the wonder and the splendor and the majesty that is His, He yet gave us the perfect picture. Subordination. And that is our footing for the rest of this chapter, okay? 
We are all to be in subjection one to another. Without that understanding, we will not understand what God is saying to the church here. And with that understanding, Paul now delves into the treacherous waters of spousal submission. Verse 22, wives. And I'm so thankful he deals with the wives first. (laughs) Wives, to your own husbands as to the Lord. He's repeating, be subject is in italics, but he's just repeating from verse 21. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. The application he's first giving to the ladies. For the husband is, and I know some don't like this, but the husband is the head of the wife. As Christ is also the head of the church, he himself the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives to their husbands in everything. Everything? I got to submit to that big hairy oaf? He may, you know, he may have been some kind of Don Juan when we met, but now I don't want to be around him at all. <laughs> so ladies, hear me very clearly. Don't. You don't want to submit? Don't. You don't want to be in subjection to your husband? Don't be. Unless you fear Christ. If you fear Christ, you must be subordinate to your husband. You must accept his headship. Wives, listen. Spousal subjection is not for your husband alone. Nor is spousal subjection just for you. It's for Christ's sake. It's for the fear of Christ. It's because of your relationship with Jesus that you would subordinate yourselves, ladies, to your husbands. That's why. That is A number one. Now it also does something in a woman's heart. And and obviously I'm not speaking as one with any experience in this area. But it does strike me that God puts us in position and in relationships in a way that we need to be. So that we will grow in Christ the way we are meant to grow. So that we will understand things the way we are meant to understand things. Not ever having been a woman, I clearly don't understand. Why would then a woman be in the place of subjection to her husband? Why would God set it up that way? He did. And it is because it does something for your husband. And it does something to your heart. But most of all, it is in the fear of Christ. It is because of Jesus. I know this can be difficult, and husbands were next. But let me give you three reasons I believe there is the biblical standard of subjection, especially on the part of the wife, as we begin. And number one is very simply the created order. The created order. That God created us in this order. This was His arrangement. 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul points out, For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Well, I don't like that. I I can't help you there. It's the way it is. There are a few absolutes yet left in the world, in this relativistic society. And one of those absolutes is the man was created first, period. And there's just no getting around that. And by the way, creation was not haphazard. God could have created the woman first. Sure, He could have done that. Why was it the man? He had his purposes. God did not create on a whim. Well, let's let's try this. Oh, okay, well, let's do this. Hmm. No, you know, I mean, the duck-billed platypus, I still don't understand in creation. But it was all on purpose. The universe wasn't jerry-rigged. The universe was not slipshod in design. Isaiah 45, 18, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. God created intentionally and that includes the order of things. And you can even find that if you walk through the, the six days of creation leading up to the seventh day of rest. Look at how each of the days were created to allow for the next day to be created. It's perfect. And so God was intentional in His creation. He's always intentional. 
And He intended to create the male of our species first. Why? It's not just chronological. It's, I believe, positional. By God's intelligent design, man was given positional leadership in the created order. I still don't like that. I know. But I can't help you there either. This is the created order. So does that make man superior to woman? No. Absolutely not. And that's where our thinking gets messed up. That's where the not desiring to be in subjection becomes a problem. Because immediately, because man is in this position and woman is in this position in the relationship, suddenly now there's, there's this conflict. Well, there wouldn't be if we were all in subjection to one another anyway. Right? It wouldn't make any difference. But this is the deal. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Ladies, does that offend you? Listen, it really ought to offend the men. If you think about it, it sounds to me like man was no good on his own. The woman was created for the man's sake. Why? Because he wasn't doing so well. He needed help. Did she need help? Well, clearly not. But he did. (laughs) See, it's all a matter of how we look at and understand what God was doing. And Paul, I love that he says this. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, he says, However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. And that's the point. God alone is superior, and the rest of us are subordinate. So it really doesn't matter who was created first, except that we acknowledge God's intentions. Why did He do what He did? And ladies and gentlemen, the battle of the sexes ends when we recognize the superiority of God over us all. And we accept that His Word, His intentions, His design is flawless, and that's what we want to follow. Again, it may not always make sense to us in our flesh, but He puts us in these roles, in these positions, for our benefit, because in His perfect design, He knows exactly what we need. Now, there's another reason for the wife's subjection to her husband, and it's not only the created order, but it is also, secondly, the covering ordinance. The covering ordinance. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Skip down to verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but note this, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. So husbands, the the call on you is to love your wife as Christ loved the church. How did He love the church? All the way to the cross, the ultimate subordination. That's how a man is to love his wife. That is agape, by the way, when He says, Husbands, love your wives. Agape. Unconditionally. And the husband in the marriage is compelled to Jesus' example of unconditional, self-sacrificial love. Now, put that into reality. Loving my wife without condition. Meaning what? Meaning husbands? While she is called to submit to you, you have no right to require it of her. You cannot command her to submit to you. You cannot rule over her or lord it over her in the marriage. You are to love your wife regardless of how she responds to you. How's that one? You love her anyway. Well, but she's just being so... I don't see that in the passage. Husbands, love your wives unless she's being... And you fill in whatever you want there. (laughs) Love your wife... As long as she submits to you. That's not what it says. Husbands, love your wives. Period. How did Christ love the church? He went to the cross before we ever made a decision for Him or against Him. 
He died knowing that there would be people who would absolutely rebel against Him their entire lives. People who would end up on their own crosses as thieves, and yet in the last minute would be saved as the thief on the cross was. That's just such a stunning picture. Here's a guy who rebelled against God, who ended up, you know, on death row, in the chair, as it were, ready to die, and turns to the Lord in the last minute, and the grace of God is such unconditional love that even in spite of all this guy had ever done, said, today you will be with me in paradise. That's the husband's attitude toward the wife. I will love you no matter what you do. And that's Hosea, isn't it? Hosea, who had to keep going out and getting his wife, who ended up back out on the streets in prostitution, had to go out and get her and bring her home and love her again, in spite of the fact that she had done this. That's the mentality that we're called to. And man, if we could apply these values to our marriages, they would silence all marital conflict. If the husband would love his wife as Christ loved the church, if the wife would be subject to her husband as to the Lord, there would not be conflict in our marriages. Would there? They would be beautiful relationships all the time. And in fact, let's take it a step further. All the male versus female, Mars versus Venus arguments that are so prevalent in our culture over who has the right are completely given up. When we say I do. Oh, no, not when we say I do to a spouse. When we say I do to Jesus. The moment I say I do to Jesus Christ, I no longer have the right to say that I am better than or above any woman or any man. And when I say I do to Christ, ladies, I don't have the right then to buck the system, to fight against the husband, or men in the workplace, for position. That's all gone. That's all flesh. And we are called to be in the Spirit. Let me add this at this moment here. Sisters who have been hurt by a man, please understand that it is sin that is a brute. It's sin that causes pain and hurt. It's not men. And men who have been wounded by a woman understand that it's sin that injures. Not the fact that she's a woman, it's the fact that she's a human. Ladies, it's not the fact that he's a man, it's the fact that he's a human. We all have this sin nature we have to deal with. And the reality is that we are not on opposing sides. We were not created to be on opposing sides. It really, the older I get, the more the whole male-female battle in our culture sickens me. Because we were made for each other. Not made to be in contention. And I believe it is time for the church to stand up and to reject the him versus her propaganda that is propped up by the devil and our culture. But now we come to the third reason for this teaching on marriage. I would call it the real reason. The created order, the covering ordinance that God gave us in marriage, all of that is beautiful, but skip down to verse 31 and we understand the reason for Paul's writing. This, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now in the King James it says a man shall cleave his wife and I think that's really bad. <laughs> Maybe that's the source of the conflict right there. The guy thinks, i got to cleave my wife. I, well, no, no. It was cleave unto, which I know is Elizabethan. <laughs> I mean, I get this picture of a dwarf with an axe, you know. <laughs> For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In the Hebrew, that's echad, and it's a unity of one, and it's the same word that is used to describe God. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Same word. And then Paul says in verse 32, This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul does what Jesus does. In Matthew 19, verse 5, Jesus quotes the same passage out of Genesis 2, 24, reclaiming the created order for marriage, reclaiming the covering ordinance of marriage, while revealing to us here the marital mystery. Which is what? 
Number three, the consummation of Christ and the church. The consummation of Christ and the church. That is what this whole passage is really all about. It's not just an order for marriage or how things will work out best. Although, apply these things practically in your marriage and it will make your marriage better. Guaranteed. Every time. Apply these things in a new marriage and it sets the pattern for a right and a long-term marriage. Apply these things, by the way, to a marriage right now that is failing. Start applying these things immediately. It will change everything. Guaranteed. Doesn't matter what the personality is of the person. Doesn't matter what they've done in their past to you or against you. Apply this and it will change everything. But that's not the point. Paul begins, he's in this whole practical section, Ephesians 4 through 6, giving applied theology as we've talked about. And yeah, he's, he's talking about marriage and then he's going to get into family relationships and dealing with all that in the imitation of God in our lives. But even as he begins to talk about marriage, Paul realizes, has revelation, so it seems, as to what this is really all about. It is Christ and the church that is being described here. Christ in the church. Go back to verse 25. Walk this through. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. He is Christ. She is the church. And the picture of marriage is the closest love relationship that we have on earth to express in portrait form Christ's desire for His church. That's kind of the whole point of marriage. Why did God establish it this way? Because ultimately it would be the best picture we have of Christ in the church. A good marriage, a loving marriage, a strong marriage, a devoted marriage where one is subject to the other and the other gives himself up for the one and together you have this beautiful, historical love story. And God said, I'm going to give them marriage because marriage is going to show them what my desire is for them. They'll be able to see in this portrait, in this picture of marriage, they'll be able to get a glimpse, an understanding of Jesus and the church. In verse 28, so husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Again, just as Christ also does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. But like Moses, we've messed with the picture, haven't we? We have this beautiful portrait. I have a a wedding portrait on my desk. It's Cheryl on our wedding day, and I've had it on my desk since I started in ministry. A lot of it was for my own heart, so that I would see her there every day and remember where my relationship was. It would be as though I took that picture of Cheryl, turned it face down, and shattered it on the corner of my desk. That's what we've done. That's what we've done to marriage, and we've done it in divorce. We've done it in separations, in unfaithfulness, in affairs. Even in common marital discord, we have messed with the picture. All of our fingerprints are on this fractured picture. But guilt is not the point. You know, anytime I talk about things as close to home as marriage, guilt is not the point. That's not what we're trying to get at here. And I've shared with you many times before that when we're talking about the truths of Scripture and there's carnage in our past, in our history, even as recently as this morning, when you're coming to the Word of God, you always come fresh. His mercies are new every morning. Which means it's not a matter of what we did back then, it's a matter of what are we going to do today going forward. How are we going to live now moving forward? How are we going to proclaim this beautiful marital picture of Christ in the church today and forward? That's what we're called to. That's what we're talking about. And as I said before, in light of our earth-shattering sin, the portrait is all the more profoundly precious. Because we get to see this is what God intended. This is His heart. 
Verse 23, again, Christ also is head of the church. He Himself, the Savior of the body. Verse 24, the church is subject to Christ. So what Paul's saying is not only are we in subjection to Christ, but we are saved by Christ. We're in subjection because of salvation. Subjection is easy, therefore, because I've been saved. How could I not be subject to Jesus? How could I not be on my knees before Him? Wrap my arms around His legs as Mary did on Resurrection Sunday and Jesus said, stop clinging to me. Chill. It's cool. I'm here. I'm right here. You know? We are subject to Him because He saved us. And verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Now, I've actually heard it said before, a husband might say, a wife might say, Oh, he saved me. Oh, she saved me. No, they didn't. No, they really didn't. I mean, maybe temporarily they made you feel better about yourself. Trust me, give them time, they will make you feel worse about yourself. That's kind of what we do. (laughs) But the saving of Jesus is so much more. And this is what I want you to dial into. Verse 26, Jesus did it so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she, that is the church, would be holy and blameless. No spot, no wrinkle. The word spot in the Greek, spilos, that is an acquired defect. An acquired defect. The word wrinkle is prutus, and prutus is an inherited mark. That is, you come with it. It's, it's in the DNA. Okay, I've got, I've got scars, uh, spilos, spots, on my hands. I've got a, a nice one on my knee. Uh, just from growing up, from living life in the world, scars that happen because I did it to myself. You know, I I did stupid things, or I went over the handlebars of my bike. I did that as a kid. Remarkable story. Painful, but I did that. So I've got scars and things that are left over from that. That would be uh, spilos. But I've also got crutus, which are scars that I came with. You know, I've got scars actually on my upper lip and around my nose. Because I was born with a defect. I didn't do anything. I just came that way. It was just part of how I showed up on the planet. And spiritually, that's what Jesus is dealing with. He's dealing with both spots, that is, moral blemishes that we bring on ourselves. And wrinkles, which are our sin nature, wrinkles are going to be there whether you want them or not. And the older you get, the more you see them. There's nothing you can do about them. You can Botox yourself to death, and some do. But the wrinkles are going to come because, man, that's just, it's in the DNA, man. And Jesus deals with both. David describes both. Let me get more specific. Now David, who messed up the picture of marriage big time, few of us have done what David did. You know, rather than than being washed, he watched Bathsheba bathing. And that was the start of a whole bad thing. And then he committed adultery with her, and then he lied to cover it up, and then he had her husband Uriah betrayed and killed on the battlefield. And all of this David did until he was found out. Well, God knew all along what was going on. God sends Natan the prophet to him. David is convicted. He goes down hard. He comes into a place of deep confession and repentance. He wrote it in Psalm 51. Listen to how he describes spots and wrinkles. Moral blemishes we bring on ourselves and our sin nature, which is there anyway. David says in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you... You only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Those are the acquired spots. My sin choices, David said. I did these things. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Psalm 51 verse 5. Then he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. And he's talking there about his inherited wrinkles. His spiritual DNA. His sin nature. Now I came into the world already with this sin nature. Now that doesn't mean that his mother's sins were his, his to bear. But it means that he came in the flesh, and if we are in the flesh, we have a sin nature, and we are going to sin because the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. 
So that's the, it's in the DNA. It's how I arrive. I'm going to sin. But then the sin choices I make, it's spots and wrinkles. It's both. And that's what Jesus wants to wash away. That's what this husband does in this beautiful marital relationship. I've got both. You've got both. Acquired sin and inherited sin. Behavioral sin and natural sin. And we need desperately sanctification. And so that's what he does. And listen, he does it by the washing of water with the word, verse 26. Which is a phrase I've used a lot. In fact, it's a phrase that I've pulled out oftentimes in teaching. Hey, we need the washing of water with the word. So let's get in the word and let's get washed. And the word has a way of doing that. But the washing of water, this is an interesting wedding picture that Paul is drawing off of. In the traditional Jewish wedding, before the bride was given to the groom, she went through a cleansing bath. And then she would be dressed straight out of the bath in the bridal gown, and she'd be adorned with jewels. Now you might say, well, that's nothing new. Uh, Any bride in her right mind is going to take a bath before the wedding. Okay, but you need to understand, first century Middle Eastern and Asian culture would have been quite different. You know, in that culture, you'd take a bath at least once a month, whether you needed it or not, you know. Bathing was not like we do it as Americans, and we are very OCD about it, having to have the, you know, stay clean all the time and clean off the oils and all that. They were good with oils back in those days. Dirt was not an issue. And so this was a very special time, a, a cleansing that the woman would go through. And God, by the way, used this same exact picture of ancient Israel. Let me just read this to you. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. Thinking about, talking about the washing of water with the word. I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. And then I bathed you with water washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of purpose of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and I covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your dress was of fine linen. Silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And that's what God did with Israel. That's his description of how he brought this people out. And and he bathed her, the bride of God. You know, the wife of God. Note that. He says, I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I washed off the blood that was on you, which is, you know, that would be the sin nature. And I anointed you with oil. That is, I gave you a spiritual anointing that would overcome all sin choices. And God did this. This inspired picture of God's relationship with Israel. Paul now carries forward in Ephesians 5 for Christ in the church. It's the same concept, the same idea, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Now the washing of water is replicated in baptism. And that is, I believe, exactly what Paul is talking about. The washing of water speaks of baptism. The word is lutron in the Greek, and it is the act of bathing. And it's the reason that the Bible teaches immersion, by the way. It uses the word baptizo, which means to immerse. It's supposed to be portrayed in a full washing. No bride in her right mind would sprinkle a little water on her forehead and call it good. Would she? I bathed you. I washed you, he said to Israel. Paul now says, the washing of water. Well, how do you know that's baptism, Rick, and not just a metaphor for something else? Because the word washing is only used twice in the New Testament. It's used here, the washing of water with the word, and it's used again in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we go through the washing, and then the regeneration and renewing, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Water baptism, listen, doesn't consummate the marriage of Christ in the church any more than the bride's bath consummates her marriage. But what it does do is it, it indicates outwardly what's going on inwardly. That's, that's baptism. That's why we do it. It's a picture at the outset of an outward cleansing that portrays the inward washing that Jesus Christ does. And by the way, regarding his own baptism, Paul, I'm sure, never forgot what Ananias told him right before he was baptized. Acts 22.16 Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Let me clarify. I do not believe that the water of baptism somehow magically washes away your sin. It doesn't. But faith in God's grace does and must precede baptism. Which, by the way, on a side note, is why we baptize adults and not babies. It's fine for parents to want to dedicate a child, and we do baby dedications, but the baptism of an adult, or at least someone who's old enough to make the conscious decision, I want this, I desire this, because we are saved by faith in His grace. And baptism portrays that. Well, the washing of water with the Word speaks specifically of something here, baptism, the washing of water, But what about the Word? Because again, I've used this. Oh, it's the water and the Word. Okay, let's let's get into the Word and get washed. Now, I think the Word has a power to do that. And in fact, Jesus uses it that way. John 15.3 You are already clean because of the Word, the Logos, which I have spoken to you. But the Word of God, that is the Logos, is not the Word that Paul uses here. When he says the washing of water with the Word, the Word is Rima. It's the spoken Word. Meaning what? Listen, please get this. The washing of water with the Word, the spoken Word, is not the Word that the groom has spoken, that is Jesus. It is the Word that the bride speaks when she says, I do. The washing of water portraying baptism with the Word portraying our confession of faith. Portraying my desire to be washed. My vow, my confession of faith in Jesus. He said, Matthew 10.32, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And the reason why Paul doesn't mention baptism right there is because salvation comes through faith in God's grace. I know, Rick, you said that three times. I want to make sure we get it. It's faith in His grace that saves. But the washing is a picture on the outside of what He's done on the inside. A profound picture. Faith declared, the washing received, and Jesus is the only groom about whom we can rightly say, He saved me. He saved me. So make the vow, if you haven't already. The vow of faith in Christ Jesus. The confession of love for Him. Is this this just a one-time vow? You may have have heard the old curmudgeon who says, I told you I loved you on our wedding day. If anything changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) Listen, the confession of love for Jesus Christ, for me, is a daily thing. In fact, it's an every time I think of him thing. A constant confession. I confess my love to and for my wife constantly. I'm always telling Cheryl I love her. You think she doesn't know by now? Of course she does. But I continue to say it. I continue to confess it. I continue to to blurt it out at, at all manner of times. And guys, that's not a bad idea. Husbands, tell her you love her and do it a lot. What I found is the more I tell her I love her, the more I will act in love for her. And the same thing is true of my confession of Jesus. The more I tell Him I love Him, the more I confess faith in Jesus, the stronger my faith gets. The more I experience faith in my daily life. Sadly, some approach Jesus like the ornery old grumbler. What do you mean? Well, they do it in worship by not worshiping. Do you remember when you first gave your life to Jesus, how it changed you? how much you wanted to praise Him, do that. Confess Him again. Some are embarrassed 
to publicly express their love of God. Well, yeah, I, but that's, that's private. That's between me and God. No, no, the confession. Man, speak the word of love for Jesus constantly. Let it be on your lips and in your heart. Confess your faith often. And if you have yet to be washed, why do you delay? Get up. Be baptized. Why? Because the wedding is almost here. The wedding is almost here. And this is where the washing of water with the word is perfect. The confession, the washing, and then here comes the wedding. Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Wedding's coming. Revelation 19 verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So brothers and sisters, in Christ, because that's what we're talking about here, pursue that righteousness and holiness, spotlessness, Paul would say, and is saying in this entire section, be imitators of God in Christ Jesus. Pursue Him. And and like a bride waiting for her groom, will be a church ready for you. Now this, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And can you even imagine? I mean, wouldn't, isn't that what we want in a marriage? Love and respect? Isn't that what we all would long for? Mutual love and respect in the marital relationship? How do we get there? Especially when the wedding portrait has been so shattered, it's very simple be in subjection. Just be in subjection. Ladies, subject yourselves to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Men, be willing to be subject to the ladies in this fellowship. Ladies, be subject to the men in this fellowship. Let us all be subject to one another in the fear of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, there is much for us still to learn and to understand and to glean from this passage regarding our own marriages or future marriages. But Lord, more than that this morning, I pray the impression on our hearts would be of that of Christ in the church. Help us to look to Jesus, to long for Him as a bride for her groom. And Lord, we ask that You would work in us in such a way to make us spotless, to wash us with the water and the Word. But then, Father, to continue to cleanse us of our sin and to make us right before You. And for our part, Lord, allow us, give us the strength, as it were, to to put ourselves in subjection, to be a people who are subordinate to our Lord Jesus Christ and to one another in the love and fear of Christ. For we know, Lord, that in Your perfect will, this is how it will all come together. Oh, we love You, Father. And we look forward to the marriage of the Lamb. Ready us for that day in Jesus, I pray. Amen.